The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're up to chapter 9 in Zook's book. This is on the hermeneutics of parables and allegories. Now, this is probably going to be a review for a lot of you because we've talked about both of these already, especially as we went through the life of Christ. So I'll be asking you some questions along the way, and uh, you can impress me with how much you've remembered. So the definition of a parable, it comes from a compound Greek word, uh, parabole, a compound term composed of para, which is a preposition in Greek for beside, and then the verb balan, to throw or cast, so literally a casting aside or beside. And the idea then is a, a comparison between two things. Usually it's a, an earthly story that illustrates a spiritual truth. That's the short, concise definition. Obviously, it was Jesus used a lot of parables, and he used stories from the realm of everyday life, uh, domestic stories, agricultural stories, um, a lot of planting of seed, for example, fishing stories. Here's a more thorough definition by a guy who actually did his dissertation on the hermeneutics of parables. Uh, this is Stanley Ellison. He says, that a parable is a figurative history, true to life, and that's what distinguishes it from a fable. A fable can uh, teach some kind of truth, but oftentimes you have trees talking or other things that aren't true to life. Parable is not that way. True to life, designed for the pedagogical purpose of conveying some specific spiritual truth, usually relative to the kingdom of God. So it has five constituent elements as given in the definition. First, it's a narration or a story containing a sequence of actions. Second, it's true to life or within the realm of probability. Third, it's artificial design rather than historical, so don't get hung up on that. It's true to life, but not historical. It's not necessarily something that has happened. Fourth, it represents the transference of knowledge between two spheres, utilizing the known to teach the unknown. And fifth, its obvious purpose is to convey some truth belonging to the sphere of religion that is relative to the kingdom. Now, there's other ways that the term parable is used, and it would be very similar to a proverb, and we'll look at some examples of that. Um, but most of the parables in the Bible are used, obviously, by Jesus himself. And if you read Zook, he lists 35 in this chapter of parables that were given by Jesus. Most of them are in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, uh, only five in Mark's. I don't think there's any in the Gospel of John. A parable is a, a really good teaching device, and that's what Ellison's talking about when he talks about a pedagogical device. Why? Why do you think so? Why, <clears throat> why not just state the spiritual truth rather than giving it in the form of a parable? Now, there's a couple of different answers to that question, but what makes a parable a good teaching device? Um, well, Jesus did it most of the time to, so that the scribes and Pharisees wouldn't be able to understand what he was conveying. Okay, that's a good point. Parables both hid truth from those that were opposing Christ while at the same time revealing new truth to those that were committed to following him. I think also he, um, it, it allows people to get a picture of what he's talking about. It allows them to really see, it makes it tangible for them to see what he's talking about without actually being so specific that he says, 
these are the people that are bad. He just says, if you're like this and like this, then if people could imagine what he's saying. Okay. We all enjoy stories, right? And that's part of it is that this is a story that we can understand and we can hopefully understand the spiritual truth that it's communicating at the same time. The other thing that I think it does is it actually makes us think. You hear the story, sometimes there's unexpected elements in there, and we have to think about what the meaning is, and it's always a good thing when you have to think. So <clears throat> it really draws your the audience in, especially Jesus was a master at doing this, and it makes them think, and, and I think also it helps cement the truth or the lesson that he's trying to communicate because of that. So just some guidelines for interpreting the parables. Uh, we're not going to look at a lot of parables this morning, but I want to give some general guidelines. The reason we're not going to is we've done that in the past as we went through the life of Christ. But some general guidelines for interpreting parables. One is it's always important to, context is always important anytime, but context is important in the parables because you want to understand what prompted him to turn to parables or what prompted him to teach a particular truth in the parable. And the classic example of this is one we've, again, talked about a lot before. What was the context of Jesus turning the parables in Matthew 13 in particular? What had happened right before that? Let me get it. Annalise. Okay. He'd actually cast an unclean spirit out of a man, and instead of giving glory to God for his doing that, they attributed his power, his ability to do that, to Satan, which is... Uh, the worst conclusion they could have drawn. So it's at that point, and remember, well, I'll show you in just a minute kind of the argument of Matthew and how things had built up to that point. But at that point, Jesus said, okay, enough. I'm not going to give you explicit truth like I've done up to this point in my ministry. I'm going to start teaching you in parables. And as Isaiah pointed out earlier, that was a way that he could hide truth from those that were opposing him and often trying to catch him saying something they didn't think was right, and at the same time reveal new truth to those that were committed to following. Those that he hid truth from, from would eventually become so frustrated and their hearts would be so hardened that Scripture tells us that it even took away truth that they had formerly held. So in one sense, it was a judgment against particularly the rulers of Israel because they had rejected Christ as their Messiah, and his teaching in parables caused them to, to miss what he was teaching, the main message of what he was teaching. So context is really important and always thinking about what gives rise to the parable itself. Secondly, you want to thoroughly understand the physical story first before you try to understand what the spiritual truth being taught is. Now, I think for Jesus' hearers and his original audience, that was much easier than it is for us today. Uh, some people that grew up on a farm today or are familiar with agriculture in general would have a better understanding. Some of them are not so complicated that we can't understand them, but it's always good to research and try to get some better understanding of the original context of the, uh, the, the story itself and what it's communicating um, because, you know, if you miss the physical story and, and what it's saying, you're going to miss the spiritual truth that it's trying to communicate. Thirdly, you want to understand the central thrust of the parable and then relate, relate the details appropriately. Now, some people will be very strong to say there's only one main point that you need to get out of the parable. 
And oftentimes on the shorter ones, that's true. But there are parables that Christ himself interprets that have significance in the details. So it's, it's really kind of hard to say, you know, absolutely. There's always just one central thing and that you don't worry about the details. Uh, it's another case like types where details can be pressed further than they should be. But you want to, one of the things that's helpful to do is look at the ones that Christ himself does interpret and then judiciously assign details if they're helpful or if they're appropriate. And again, that just takes judgment. It takes uh, reading what other commentators have said. Uh, sometimes it's really easy to spot when they're assigning details to something that it shouldn't have. Uh, other times you just have to be careful. Avoid importing a theological system into a parable or reading much more into it than would have been clear to its original hearers. Let me give you a couple of examples about that. Uh, you're familiar with the two parables in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 13, that talk about the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. They come one right after the other. And a lot of dispensational writers in particular will say that one deals with uh, Israel as God's treasured possession, the one of hidden treasure. And the, the pearl of great price is the fact that, <clears throat> well, it's, it relates to the church. And the, what they say is it's only through a severe agitation that a oyster produces a pearl in a similar way. Christ had to die in order for the church to come into being. To me, what they're clearly doing is, is taking a theological system that I believe in. I believe there's a clear distinction between the church and Israel and reading it into those two parables in a way that is not present. I mean, how would the original hearers have understood that when the church didn't even exist at that time, uh, I think I think it's more appropriate to think about the fact that <clears throat> one pearl was used metaphorically in that time as a symbol for truth, spiritual truth. Remember when Christ said, "Don't throw your pearls before swine." So I would argue that the pearl of great price is a a symbol for a complete knowledge of the kingdom, and so. Those are the kinds of things that you just want to be careful about. You, you want to try, as we've already said before, to always put yourself in the shoes of the original hearers, try to understand different metaphors even in the same way that they would have. So another really important point about parables is the importance of considering the whole story. We have this introductory formula on a lot of the parables. The kingdom of heaven is like... For example, a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, is the kingdom of heaven like the man? Because that's the next thing that comes after. Or is it like the whole story of a man who sowed good seed in his field, uh, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away? It's the whole story. Now, in that example, it's pretty obvious. There's a picture of what that would be like. And... and the point being that you do want to consider the whole picture to understand what the parable is teaching. But oftentimes interpreters, when they come to the shorter ones, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure which a man found hidden in a field and rehid. They will say immediately that the treasure is the kingdom of God. And then the, the pearl that the man found um, is, is also the kingdom of God. Well, that's where you, you can't say that. It's like the whole story of the man finding the treasure, rehiding in the field, 
gathering his resources and purchasing the field. So that's the point here. Um, you just want to consider the whole story. Let me, let me read the rest of the one about the one, uh, the tares in the field, and then I want to show you another one and see if you can tell me in each case what, what the truth is being taught by the parable. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. Obviously, we have to understand what tares are. What are they? Okay, they're weeds. What, what else do we know about them? They overwhelm and overtake the actual plant. Okay, they overwhelm the actual plant. They're very bad for the true wheat. They're pretenders because they look like wheat, right? And so you've got both out there growing together. Let's keep reading the story. When the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. So that's, you know, through a process, there has to be time to pass, growth to come. At a certain point, there's recognition. It wasn't recognized early on that there had been uh, bad seeds sowed with the good, but at a certain point, it was. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. What is the point of that parable? What's the spiritual truth that's being taught? Okay. Inside of, inside of the like church, or I know the church is not established yet, but like that, or, or in the synagogues and things like that. Okay, so you made a couple of good points there. One, the church is not established yet. I'm going to show you a diagram in just a minute to show what phase we're talking about as we look at these parables in Matthew 13, and the church is kind of coexists with that. The kingdom that Christ is describing in Matthew 13 began before the church began and continues after the church is taken out of the world. Hypocrites or pretenders, as Pat said, would be people that have some association or some profession of faith in Christ even, uh, but are not genuine believers. And they're actually uh, can be enemies and detrimental to genuine believers. What's the point about not going ahead and getting rid of them now and waiting until the harvest. What does that teach us? I mean, it's not our responsibility as a church to root out the people that we think are imposters and get rid of them, right? Wait, you have to, like, wait till they're fully mature. Well, you have to wait till judgment. That's the point here is harvest in, is a, the time that judgment comes and God is the one that separates the true believers from the false false professors now we can also say the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind a dragnet I'm not a fisherman but I know about this because I studied this parable uh, it would be a net that they would cast from the shore from the beach and even take it around and tie it back in at another point on the beach, and it's a very large net. And then eventually they would pull it in toward the shore, and what do they have to do then? When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down 
and gather the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. What's the point of that parable? Okay, so really, these two parables, the wheat and the tares and the dragnet, are very similar. Their emphases are different. The one, the wheat and the tares, is really talking about the time in between, kind of the process and the fact that we wait until judgment. Uh, with the dragnet, the focus is more on the judgment at the end, the separation of the good fish from the bad, but very similar in their truths and what they're teaching. Those are illegal, by the way, now, dragnets, because they grab porpoises and stuff yep. like that, all kinds of fish that are endangered. They grab them in there, too, with them, so those are illegal now. Okay. It's FYI. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not planning on doing one anytime soon, but I didn't realize that. I wonder if they're illegal even in Israel. They're huge. Oh, I, I mean, here, I don't know about every other country in the world, they all have their, but here for sure. Yeah. I mean, this is another point, you know, there's different kinds of fishing nets, even within the scripture. And it's one of those things where you're reading about it, got a good Bible encyclopedia, you can look up and see what kind of net they're talking about. Uh, and Dragnet, in this case, would it'd be very helpful to do that kind of research on. So the main topic for Jesus' parables is the kingdom of God. I think I've shown you this diagram before, but... This is a very important concept in Scripture. We hear the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven today, and we think about maybe God being in heaven and his rule over the ones that have already gone to heaven. Uh, that's not the way the Bible presents it, especially in the older, God's older testament. I won't call it old because it makes it sound like it's obsolete. But there's a lot of Scripture in the Old Testament that's devoted to the kingdom, right? And the fact that you had this united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon for about 120 years, and then Solomon's sin divided the kingdom into the northern and southern kingdoms. We know the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom lasted a little longer, but was taken captive in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. But all through, especially the latter stages of this time, prophets are, uh, for one, one thing, rebuking Israel and Judah for their sins, but at the same time anticipating a future kingdom that's going to fulfill all the covenants in a way that none of their kings had up to that point. So it, the prophets talk a lot about this coming kingdom and this coming king, this coming Messiah, anointed one, that's going to lead the people in keeping the law and, and lead the people in a way that they've never experienced before so you have this long intertestamental period of about 400 years where the prophets cease uh, there is no direct revelation from God and then boom John the Baptist bursts on the scene he's really the last of these older testament prophets and what is his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you've got to understand that Old Testament concept that they already had in their past and recognize he's in line with all those Old Testament prophets that were prophesying the same thing. He's basically saying, look, it's close now. 
It's, it's getting here. They were prophesying hundreds of years ago. Now it's time. Of course, John the Baptist was followed by Christ and his apostles with that same message. They preached that message to their generation. And what did that generation, how did they respond? Like the previous generations, they killed the prophets, they killed them as well. Yep, they killed them as well. They didn't embrace that message. Uh, and these were the religious leaders and the people that knew the Old Testament scriptures the best. They should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. He did plenty of works and taught with plenty of authority to verify that he was the Messiah, but they didn't. And then we reach that climax in Matthew 11 and 12 where they attribute his power to the power of Satan. Well, it's at that point that this new phase of the kingdom that hadn't been predicted by the Old Testament prophets uh, was initiated. And the parables in Matthew 13 are mysteries of the kingdom, mystery in the sense of not mysterious, the way that we often think about that word, mysteries in the sense of new revelation, new revelation about a phase of the kingdom that wasn't seen in the Old Testament. That's what the parables are doing. They're providing that new revelation. They're, they're providing it about this period that began with Christ's rejection in Matthew 12 and goes all the way to the end of this age. Now, within that kingdom is the church. It was born at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. It's going to be taken out of the world at the rapture. And then after that is another seven-year period of tribulation is described by the book of Revelation. Only then does Christ come, and he comes and rules for a thousand years as the king, just like the kings did in the Old Testament, and that uh, eventuates into the new heavens and new earth. So, again, the, the truths of the parables apply to the church. The mystery form of the kingdom that we're in right now is not strictly equivalent to the church, but the church and the gospel message that we proclaim through the church is the gateway into the kingdom of God today. Israel has been temporarily set aside, um, and, and we're living in this period that's in the red triangle there. That's where most of the parables that Jesus uh, gives is addressing that period of time. Somebody have a hand? Kevin. So we're we're strictly speaking here in between these two brackets. But then after the rapture, there's going to be a seven-year period, and then then the thousand-year period. That's correct. And we actually come back with Christ here uh, when He comes at the end of the tribulation period. And the reason I illustrate it that way is again, this kingdom actually began before the church came into being at Pentecost and and some of the parables as we just looked at this morning address the separation that takes place when Christ comes back in judgment so the church is is in this time period and it runs concurrently with this phase of the kingdom but they're not strictly equivalent all right so I mentioned that I was going to go through Matthew's argument what, what is it that Matthew is trying to do in his gospel? Every gospel writer has a purpose. Everyone selects from all the events that Jesus did and things that he taught to support that purpose. What is it that Matthew is trying to do in his gospel? He started with a, um, 
genealogy. Genealogy, yeah. And I think he's trying to prove that Jesus really is the Messiah through the genealogy, through all that, that he has the right to be king. And he's kind of using a historical, methodical way of showing that, yes, he is the Messiah. That's exactly what he's doing, not only in that genealogy in chapter 1, but through his whole gospel. So... There's three major movements within Matthew's gospel. First is the presentation of Jesus Christ, Jesus that all these people are familiar with now because of his three-year public ministry, as the indisputable king of the Jews. He starts with that genealogy in his birth in chapters 1 and 2. He, prov- he talks about the forerunner of the king, John the Baptist, in chapter 3. He shows that where Israel had failed 40 years in the wilderness, Christ had the moral character to be this king by overcoming the temptation of Satan in chapter 4. He provides the king's manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, and then the king's power in 8 through 10. Remember, Matthew takes various acts of power, miracles, casting out demons that Jesus did at different points in time, not necessarily in chronological sequence here, and puts them all together in 8 through 10. That's the first major movement, chapters 1 through 10. Secondly, in the chapters that we just talked about, 11 and 12, Matthew shows that despite all this authority and power and clear credentials that the king has, ha- has demonstrated, that the Israel's leaders rejected him as their king. And so from that point forward, to, from 13 to 28, Jesus starts talking about, well, he starts ministering in light of that rejection by Israel's leaders. This is where his parables take place. This is only this is when he starts talking about his second coming and what's going to take place at that time, particularly in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. All right, let me go back there. Are there any questions about parables? It's it's an important topic because they are so prevalent in the Gospels. We've gone through some of them in the life of Christ. If you ever have questions about some that you want help with, please don't hesitate to ask about those. Um, but it's, it really is an important feature to understand because there are so many and, and they're given by Jesus. All right. Let's talk about allegories. There are allegories in Scripture, believe it or not. What's the difference between an allegory and allegorical interpretation? or allegorization. It's a very distinct difference. What is it? Okay, it reads into things other than a true allegory. Uh, Spiritual meanings aren't there. Let me repeat that so everybody can hear you. Um, an allegory is a legitimate literary device where a story represents something else. We talked about how a parable is an extended simile because it says the kingdom of heaven is like this story. An allegory doesn't separate those two things. It just tells the story, and you kind of figure out what it's illustrating. Anybody think of a, a legitimate allegory in Scripture that, that operates that way? should be a couple that come to mind pretty quickly. This is one of those opportunities for you to impress me based on what we've talked about before. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
prodigal son. I think so. I think that would qualify. It's actually a series of those kinds of stories there that illustrate joy over something that was lost that's now found. And I guess Zook, Zook lists a lot of allegories in Scripture. Let's, let's go ahead and define it. As we said, the parable is an extended simile of allegories, an extended metaphor, and the distinction between those two is with a parable, you get the story separate, and then you get the truth as the parable is in, interpreted. Uh, while an allegory intertwines both story and meaning. Here's some examples that, that I listed, and these aren't exhaustive by any means. I thought you might get the vine and the branches, the good shepherd uh, in John 10. Uh, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8 and 9 is actually uh, person personifying wisdom as a lady who is calling out to uh, the people in the street, the naive ones especially, and inviting them to come and enjoy the, her banquet and the benefits of wisdom. I want to read the one in Isaiah 5. This one is probably not as familiar to you. It's only seven verses, but you'll, you'll certainly get the feel of what an allegory is as we read this. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Who, who, is, who is the vineyard? Or what does the vineyard represent? Israel. Israel. Or Israel and Judah, if you think about the northern and southern kingdom. Who is the owner of the vineyard? It's God. That becomes clear, uh, even though it's, well, this is a little bit separate, I guess, than the story, but you, you kind of figure that out as you read it, right, if you have any background at all in Isaiah and, and in that illustration uh, as an illustration of God's relationship with the nation of Israel. He goes on to say, what more was there to do for my vineyard? Oh, sorry, I missed a verse. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, its hedge being in this case a protective device around it, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. What's the significance of that? Judgment, exactly. And that's what God did, right? He did that on both nations. I will lay it waste. It will, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah is his delightful plant. So we have some help in this one. Uh, it still would be an allegory rather than a parable. Sometimes we don't get this kind of help in the end. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, Righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. You're familiar with the vine and the branches, uh, the good shepherd in John chapter 10. What's the significance of the vine and the branches, that allegory? What's it trying to teach? Well, <clears throat> that the vine is Jesus Christ, 
exist unless they are part of that vine. And even though they are part of that vine, that from time to time they're going to be trials as, as God the Father comes over and prunes it, which is painful. If you think of the plant having suffered pain, that would be what it cuts off the thing. So there's going to be pain, but in the long run, it's going to, it's going to be to make you spiritually stronger. Good. So <clears throat> Christ is the vine. We're the branches. We do get occasional pruning, just like a vine does, to produce more fruit. And I would argue that there are false branches in the vine dead wood we would say exactly that you got to cut off and get out of there those again would be that same group of people that claim some association with christ but are not genuine followers jesus is the good shepherd christ is a shepherd we're the sheep there's other uh, shepherding metaphors thrown in there like christ being the gate of the sheepfold and um more familiar with you are with shepherding especially shepherding during biblical times the easier it is to understand that but it's pretty straightforward that you know christ cares for us we're like sheep and that we're fully dependent upon him sheep are not very smart animals and uh that's the relationship that he has with his people well Now, he knows better than that. He's supposed to be teaching us Galatians here in the near future, so I'm going to make him answer that question. It is another good example of an allegory, and I'm not prepared to give a discourse on it this morning. Can you relay, relay that message back to him? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, I should be listening. Yeah, okay. I'm going to talk to that boy. The armor of God is an easy one uh, as far as it's taking the armor of a Roman soldier and illustrating that as the, the spiritual weapons that we have as believers. Sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, shield of faith. Uh, it's a very straightforward one, I think, because the, the explanations are intertwined with the metaphor. So we had some guidelines for interpreting parables. Uh, let's give some guidelines now for interpreting allegories. Note the points of comparison that are explained or interpreted in the passage. And Zook has exercises that will help you with this, 223 through 225. Zook has answers in his book, so I hope those of you that have the book are doing the exercises. You'll get more out of it that way, and you can always go and look at the answer key after you've done the work. Uh, if you have specific questions about something in Zook, please don't hesitate to ask. Determine the main point of the allegory, just like you would uh, a parable, and then don't don't press the details beyond what's reasonable. Be more conservative rather than spec speculative when you're dealing with either parables or allegories. <clears throat> Doesn't that apply to the whole Bible, though? And just don't try not to read more in it than what's written. Yes. If you think about it, I mean, God wrote. He, he didn't write the Bible to PhDs and stuff like that. He wanted masses to be able to understand what he was trying to say to them. That's right. I think that's a fair assumption for he, he wrote it for, to give believers divine revelation and Bev and I were looking at a passage uh, in Genesis that Henry Morris, and Henry Morris was talking about and what was it? They were pressing details That's right. So the Remember the, the, 
the dreams of the two guys that were in prison with Joseph, the cupbearer and the baker, and this. Now, Morris himself wasn't buying it, but he was giving examples. In this case, he was saying the cupbearer and the, the wine that flowed out of the grapes that he served was a symbol for the blood of Christ. Well, there's just no warrant for that. There's no warrant in the Old Testament in that immediate context. There's no warrant in the New Testament to make that identification. That really comes from someone who's, who's operating under the uh, presupposition that Christ is all over the Bible. Therefore, we're going to find him basically in every passage. And you don't, certainly Christ is all over the Bible in one sense. Uh, he's the centerpiece of scripture. But you don't want to go beyond what's written and, and make him appear places where he's not. That's just as bad as not recognizing him when he is there. Using that, you could take it one step further. You say that the, the water that he turned into wine was the blood of Christ. Yes. You know, it just, it just goes, keep going. That's a good point. I mean, once you start <laughs> accepting that kind of practice, anything's fair game. You're completely off the objective meaning of the text. So you always want to be careful about that. Don't, don't go beyond what's written. Okay, next time we're going to look at prophecy. Uh, just read chapter 10 in Zook. One of the ways that, <clears throat> one of the things that distinguishes dispensational and covenantal theology is the way that we approach prophecy. We still use the same hermeneutical principles when we interpret prophecy. We recognize that there are symbols like we've already talked about, but we don't treat prophecy differently. Uh, and a covenantalist would say that you should. Uh, he would argue that, you know, the Old Testament was types and shadows. We get the genuine fulfillment in the New Testament. And that allows him to do all kinds of things, such as see the church as the new Israel, see circumcision in the Old Testament as infant baptism in the New Testament. Uh, you really get off base when you go that route. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, prophecy, a lot of the Bible is prophetic, so it's another important section of Scripture to be, uh, to know how to interpret and to use good sound principles as to do that. How, how much of the Bible is prophecy? A good portion, isn't it? It is, a huge portion. I don't know, I wouldn't be able to say the exact percentage. Obviously, a lot of the prophets, the latter prophets are prophetic. You've got prophecy going all the way back to the uh, Genesis. You've got the whole book of Revelation. So, I don't know. I'd say at least 30 or 40 percent, maybe more. Any other questions or comments before we close? All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you did give it to us in, in human language that we can understand. Uh, certainly there are parts of it that are harder for us to understand than others, but uh, that only requires more diligent study on our part. You gave it to us so that we would know you and we would know your plan and we would see where we are in the progress of redemption and that we would be able to hear what you say and follow it and obey it. We thank you for even the gift of language that allows us to have this relationship with you where you can communicate to us through your word and we can pray back to you and you hear our prayers and answer them. Thank you for uh, even the parable stories that Christ gave and 
the important spiritual truths that those provide for us, particularly in this phase of the kingdom that we're in now, recognizing that Christ didn't take the throne of David in his first coming, and yet he will in his second. And we live between those two comings. So help us to, to continue to grow in our understanding of, the, of all of Scripture. Uh, as we think about next week, help us to be better students of prophecy. And again, not for the purpose of wild speculation, but so that we might know what's happening in the future and that might motivate us to live more godly in the present. Thank you for the time we've had together this morning, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.